Let's open our Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. I want to tell you a few technical things about this passage. Then I want to read it to you, and then I want to tell you about my kids. And then I want to preach from the Bible. Um, Ephesians chapter 5. And and what I want want you to notice is that Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 through 6, verse 9, are united. They're, They're linked. They're a unit. And them being a unit is not just exciting because, oh, now I know a Bible fact. 5.18 through 6.9 are a unit. This is incredible because what it gives us is a picture of the Spirit-filled life that has nothing to do with preachers. And often, when we think of being filled with the Spirit, we think of the mighty works of God in the book of Acts. And rightly, we should. Because God does, thank God, I'm glad God fills preachers, since I'm a preacher. But in... In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, we see that all of God's people, and you can see this in the book of Acts as well, but we see it especially here, that all of God's people are to be filled or under the control of the Holy Spirit. And, and the fruit of that filling, and perhaps the, uh, the way they express that filling, is through loving their wives, submitting to their husbands, loving their kids, uh, obeying their parents, and going to work. And, and part of the problem with our Christianity very often is we, can, we have... Christianity is what we do in our devotional times. It's what we do in, our, in the evening meeting. It's what we do in the Sunday morning meeting. And then there's that stuff in the middle, like the uh, like 100 hours of stuff or so, that you've got to deal with. But that is actually where God wants us to live out a Spirit-filled life. To, to be holy is not primarily to set aside a half an hour or an hour every morning, as important as that can be. But to be holy is to really walk filled by the Spirit in the most mundane things you can imagine. The decades of marriage, the decades of child raising, and the decades of going to work. And so let's read. And The way I'd point this out to you, I'll point it out to you and then we'll read it is that in 5.18, there's a contrast. Do not be drunk with wine. Don't be under the influence of wine, for that's debauchery, but be under the influence of the Spirit, but be filled with the Spirit. And then there's a number of uh, participles, which are results, or or perhaps the way in which we uh, stay in step with the Spirit. So, But be participles, for those of you who are like me and barely understand English grammar, are those I-N-G words. But... uh, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, doing what? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the, to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And it's, it's still linked. Wives, submit to your husbands. It'll go on and it'll say, Children, submit to your parents. Slaves, submit to your Masters, do you see how it's all linked? It's all, be filled with the Spirit, be singing, and wives submit, and husbands love, and children submit. The the submitting that starts in verse 21 continues in verse 22, and and 6 verse 1, 
and 6 verse 5, it's, it's all the overflow and it's all the keeping in step with, if you will, the Holy Spirit. So let me read this to you. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, and we're working it out, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, His body and is Himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her and having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of His body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And this continuing, the fruit of being filled with the Spirit continues, or the keeping in step with it continues with the four verses we'll focus on tonight. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. Father, would you please pour out your Spirit on your Word. We pray that You would do it to glorify Jesus. We pray You'd bring in lost children tonight. We pray You'd bring in lost parents tonight. We pray that You'd do these things for Your glory and so that You might be shown to be a keeper of Your promises. In Jesus' name, Amen.
Every child is very different. Uh, every child is uh, very different. Uh, you've heard the saying that a person used to have one theory on child raising and no kids, and then they had six kids and no theories. <laughs> Each of my children, I have found, by the earliest of ages, had adopted a particular philosophy of life. In fact, their philosophies were they were very technical. They were the kind of philosophies you'd find in the universities of our day. My, my children seem to have mastered the philosophies that the scholars and the wise men of our age uh, had mastered at a very young age. So let me give you an example. My oldest, when she was very young and very tender, got into trouble. And she hated being in trouble. And uh, we sent her up to her room and she screamed the screams of the damned in her room. I mean, she just, she just cried out bloody murder in her room. And then we, we're at the bottom of the stairs and she cries out, there is no God. Now where did she get that idea? Where did she get this atheistic notion that there is no God? I mean, she hadn't been to college yet. She hadn't been to preschool yet. <laughs> And yet she's in there crying out, there is no God. Why? Because man knows there's a God. And when man is in trouble, he denies the existence of God. Whether he's 40 with a PhD or four about to have his to- her toys taken away. So my first child's propensity is to be an atheist. I'm hoping she'll be a Christian. But her propensity is to be an atheist. My, my second son is a little more modern, a little more sophisticated he is by nature a postmodernist. And uh, the, the postmodern teaching, of course, is that there is no absolute truth, that what's true for you is what's true for you, and what's true for me is what's true for me. And so one time I'm upstairs with my son, and I said, uh, Son, you are in trouble for, I can't remember what he had done, we'll say stealing something from your brother. You're in trouble for stealing something from your brother. He says, Dad, he's like four. I don't understand what you mean. You're in trouble for doing what's wrong, for stealing. I don't understand what you mean. You're not supposed to steal. You stole. You're in trouble. I don't understand what you mean. There's a right, there's a wrong, and you did what was wrong. Do you understand what I mean? I don't understand what meaning means, Dad. I'm afraid there is no basis for knowledge, Father. Therefore, therefore, you will not be able to discipline me this evening. I got one atheist. I got a postmodernist. The other kid, I don't quite know which philosophy to put him in. I say to him, James, go do that. And he literally just falls to the floor. Like The, the bones leave his body the minute he is commanded to do something. And he literally becomes a puddle of humanity in front of me. And like, get up. I can't. I don't, I don't know what to label that one. My fourth son holds the same philosophy as every major dictator who has ever lived. Might makes right. Might makes right. If I've got the power, I get to do what I want. So his mother says to him, Jones, Quit stealing that from James. And he immediately just throws himself onto the floor. He decides he doesn't want to throw himself on the floor, so he gets up 
And he looks at his mother like he's a linebacker and he gets ready to tackle her. And the three-year-old runs at his mother to tackle her. The idea being, if I can get you down to the ground, I don't have to listen. Thankfully, he's three and he didn't get very far with that. (laughs) People get PhDs to advance these philosophies. But they're deep in the human heart and don't even need to be taught. These kinds of rebellion. Uh, The children which God gives us, the children which each of us were, are children who the Bible says are dead in trespasses and sins. The children who God gives us are children who the Bible says are spiritually blind. The children God gives us, the Bible says, have folly bound up in their hearts. They are those who are dead. They are those who are blind. I remember hearing one time of a, of a lady who said, I, don't, I just want to be friends with my child. You can want to be friends with your child, but they need to be born again if you're going to have fellowship. And it's very important, before we even begin to discuss parenting, that we remember who we're parenting. And, and this is very hard for Christians, because I heard someone say this earlier this week, you know, you make sure that you find a Christian spouse, Lord willing, so the man tries to find, he's a Christian, he tries to find a Christian woman, they get together, they have a child, ruins everything. All of a sudden, there's a non-Christian in the home. They find him cute, they have another, another non-Christian in the home. Find him cute, have another. There's another non-Christian in the home. And pretty soon, the home is outnumbered. Non-Christians to Christians. And parents can become extremely exasperated, saying, well, I tell you the Bible, honey, and you listen to the Bible, and yeah, I tell you the Bible, you listen to the Bible, but I tell them the Bible, and they're not interested. And it's because the people, the children that we're raising, and the children that we are, that we are, is, that we're born as, are unbelieving children. Every child needs to be born again. And so my question this morning, this evening, my question this evening is, whose responsibility is it to call these children to obedience? Whose responsibility is it to raise them up to be godly people? Whose responsibility is it to take this little child and to to evangelize them and and to disciple them and to encourage them so that they grow up to be an oak of righteousness. Whose responsibility is that? And I want to suggest to you that our passage will point us in at least four different directions. Our passage will point us in at least four different directions. I believe that Ephesians 6, verses 1-4, through teaches us that it is the church's responsibility to raise up godly children. It is the church's responsibility to raise up godly children. Now, I know that's scandalous for many people to hear today. 
Because, well, we, and we even look at the text and we say, wait a second, it says, fathers, verse 4, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Isn't it the father's responsibility to teach the child and to instruct the child? How can you say it's the church's responsibility? It's obviously the father's responsibility. Well, who wrote the verse about it being the father's responsibility? Anyone? An apostle did. A teacher of the church. It's the church that's teaching the family how to live. It's the church that's instructing the children. Who wrote directly to the children without even paying attention to their father? Just write, write for the children. Children, obey your parents. Who says that? The Apostle Paul. And we're in this generation that says we're out to focus on the family. It'll say things like, the church is just a family of families. We have people who sometimes won't even gather with larger churches because their family is a church, they think. But the simple fact is that the church of Jesus Christ is the one that instructs families. There's an authority of the church over the families in the church, and the church bears a responsibility to instruct those families. Think about it. The Apostle Paul is sitting there writing this letter to the Ephesians. And he thinks, I've got to make sure that the marriages are intact. Well, who's responsible for the marriage? Just the man of the house. No, the Apostle of the church. Well, I've got to make sure these families are doing well. Well, who's responsible for the family? Well, just the father. No, the Apostle of the church. Families would have no idea what they were supposed to do if God had not appointed church teachers in the church to give them the Word of God. Ephesians chapter verse 1, verse chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. The whole letter comes with an apostolic authority, with a church authority that comes from a teacher of the church and instructs the people of God how they are to raise their children. So does the family have authority? Yes, the family has authority. But who is the family to submit to and to learn how to raise up their children to? They are to submit to the Scriptures and the Scriptures in the Bible are taught by apostles, are given by apostles and taught by pastors. And you know what else? It's not just pastors that teach families how to live and children how to be raised. It's every individual member in the church. Every individual member is responsible for the teaching of families, and children. Let me show this to you. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 says, the Apostle Paul says, it's speaking, he's speaking in verse 11. Chapter 4, verse 11. Ephesians 4.11. Paul is speaking of the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And he says about Jesus in verse 11 that Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So God gave all these teachers, apostle teacher, prophet teachers, pastor teachers, evangelist teachers. He gave all these truth tellers to the church so that the church might know the truth. 
so they might be equipped for every good work. And what happens? It equips the saints, that's all the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. Do you see the picture of Ephesians chapter 4? What's being told to us in Ephesians 4 is that in the church we've been given teachers. And in this era we've primarily been given pastors and teachers. Well, they teach the whole church. And then the church all go home and study their Bibles themselves. No, they teach the whole church and the church then discusses the Word of God and talks about the Word of God. Or in the language of this passage, speaks the Word of God to one another in love so that the whole church grows up. Well, what are some of the things they should be talking to each other about? Hey, did you hear the Apostle Paul? He said, children, obey your parents. He said, fathers, instruct your parents. It means the whole church is talking about these things. It means when there's some little rascal in the corner of the building doing something everybody knows his parents wouldn't want, it's fully appropriate for someone to come along and say, Honey, would your daddy want to see you doing that? Children are called to obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now this doesn't mean we step on each other's toes and usurp every parent and no parent has any rights over their own children. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that within the church, we're the one who cultivate godly families. We together listen to the instruction from, that comes from this pulpit, and we listen to the instruction that comes from this pulpit, and then we're in small groups, or you're in interactions after the service, or in phone calls through the week, and we're encouraging each other in the Word. Which means we're reminding each other about Jesus and everything He did for us, but we're reminding us each other of everything He ever taught us which includes how fathers are to act and how children are to act. And that is all the role and the responsibility of the church. There's a few applications I would draw from that. One is for pastors like me. We ought to preach to families. There ought to be part of sermons or part of applications where we make it clear to the children. Now listen to me, children. There are ought to be a part of each sermon, or not every single individual sermon, but there ought to be part of the teaching where the children are being addressed, where they're being spoken to, where God is saying to them, children, obey your parents. Where He's speaking to fathers and working out the great truths we're understanding into the family's life. And one of my hopes as a pastor is to be deeply engaging to children. Martin Lloyd-Jones was sick for a little while and two 12-year-old girls wrote him a note saying they missed his preaching. I'm not succeeding as well as Martin Lloyd-Jones. My daughter says to me, Daddy, did you notice how Mr. Charles preached? He just, he just read the text and told stories and read the text and told stories. And then she looks at me like, do you get it, Daddy? Because I don't get your preaching. She, she, she told me once, you start where I can barely understand and go from there. <laughs> I'm trying, honey. But there ought to be an effort on the part of the pastors and on the part of teachers 
to make sure that fathers and mothers and children are being addressed and they understand that the Word of God has something to do to them. Now, the second application is this, and this, this should be so liberating, okay? You, every parent I know is looking for the thing to help their children. They're looking for the thing. The young parents are going, maybe room time will do it. You know, and the older parents are going, maybe a youth group with more youth would help my kids. Or they're thinking, no youth group. That's not going to help my kids. But everybody's looking for the thing that's going to help their kids be raised up to know God. You want to know the main thing you should do? First thing you should do? Take your kids to church every single week. Not very exciting, is it? You're looking for something a little more than that? You know what? There's, there isn't much more than that. You got a bunch of converted Gentiles in Ephesians and they get four verses. Four verses. We got moms with 10, 300 page books on their shelves on parenting. I don't do everything in these books. Get the four verses down. You're too tired to read 10, 300 page books. Only super moms can do that who don't need sleep. Okay? And my experience with the young mothers is they don't get sleep. And the thing is, we've, we've made parenting more complicated than the New Testament. I am not joking. This is deeply burdensome to families. Deeply burdensome. Are they dressed like they're from the 1700s? Ah, they're going to fall into the corruption of the world. Are they watching just the right movies? Ah, they're going to fall into the corruption of the world. We've got, every, we've got opinions on everything... And an exact right way to do everything. And if you're not doing it exactly that way, you're not going to have kids that turn out when the Bible just points us to some real basics. You ought to go to a church where they talk to the children and the fathers. Will that guarantee that all your kids get saved? No, but nothing will. And the best place your kids can be every single Sunday is under the Word of God. Don't let sports crowd out the place of sitting under the Word of God. Don't let the Saturday nights go so late that the children are useless on Sunday morning for sitting under the Word of God. Tell the children, we're going to go sit under the Word of God this morning. You're going to hear the Bible. I heard a story even recently about a young man who was deeply depressed deeply depressed. And the thing that was keeping him alive was something his pastor had said to him when he was five years old. Isn't that awesome? You just think of what's going into these ears now. I have a boy in my home, one of my sons. You'd never know he was listening. He's just, his eyes right there all the time. But he's stockpiling the Word of God every Sunday. And that Word of God can come at any moment and convert him. And you parents who took your kids to the, under the Word of God every week and they're still not converted, oh, just pray. Just pray that, that that seed that you put in there every week would take root. And God can use it to save them. It's, it's not lost. It will, be, it will be with... If you had your children in church every Sunday of their upbringing and you had them under the Word of God, they can be 80, 90 years old and you can be long dead and that Word will be in there to do a work the minute God wants to make it do a work. 
The third thing that that should remind us is the main thing our children need is gospel transformation. Why should... Why is Paul talking to children? Paul's a gospel preacher. Not a, what is, why is he talking to children? Because children need the gospel. He's talking to them and addressing them as those who, who should obey and be transformed by the gospel. Well, that gets me to my second point. Whose responsibility is it to raise up godly children? The first thing we said was it's the churches. The church should preach Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, Colossians 3. And many in Proverbs, and make sure that the children are addressed. But the second person who's responsible for raising up godly children is the children. The children are responsible. Do you notice who the first person addressed in this passage is? Children. Anything goes wrong with the children must be the parents' fault. Paul talks right to the children. Some of you children don't obey your parents. And you don't honor your parents. And you might say to yourself, well, it's because I didn't have great parents or because I didn't have a perfect church. No, you are personally addressed by the Word of God. The Word of God this evening is speaking directly to you. Do you see that in chapter 6, verse 1? Children, if you're 18, if you're 8, if you're 3 years old and you can hear my voice, you are a child and children, you have a calling on your life from God. One of the worst things we can do in the church is communicate that children are the church of the future. The children are the church of the future. No, they're not. If they get saved, they're the church of now. They're the people of God getting saved now. Think about the things God has done through children. Think about Samuel hearing from God in a way I've never had the privilege of hearing from God. Think about David, the, one of the youngest children, isolated by God and noted by God as he's wrestling with bears and wrestling with lions and God is spiritually cultivating him to be king over Israel. Think about Daniel who is probably 13 or 14 or 15 years old when he was deported from Israel, taken to Babylon, made to live in a foreign country, and he's risking his life for the Gospel, for faithfulness to God at this young teen years. God is able to use children. God can reach a man when he's in the womb. John the Baptist leaped for joy in his mother's womb. Jesus was asking theological questions when he was 12 years old. Many have speculated that John the Apostle may have been a teenager when he became Jesus' disciple. God is able to use the young. And we ought to speak at church and act at church like it's true. And if all the adults are walking through the church ignoring all the little ankle biters down here, as if they were nothing, they're just here for the future, you're not going to communicate that. But if we're getting in their faces and speaking to them, asking them, what is the Word of God teaching you? What did you hear when you were under the sermon? One of the things that this church is so good at, that's so encouraging, so noteworthy to anyone who comes, is you're always asking people their testimony. You're always asking people how they got saved. My wife and I were one time, we're like, how many times did you get asked when you were saved? It's so encouraging. And let's include the six-year-olds and the seven-year-olds and the eight-year-olds and the nine-year-olds in what's God doing in your life? How's He moved in your life? God speaks to 
children. And He calls you children, it says here, to obey your parents in the Lord. To obey them. Now the word obedience is very easy to understand. It's just hard to do. To obey means to do what they want you to do. To follow their command. But there's a qualifier. It says, in the Lord. You obey your parents not when they ask you to lie or steal or manipulate, but you obey your parents in the Lord as they guide you in not stealing and not lusting, as they guide you in making your bed and teaching you responsibility. And one of the, one of the worst things you can do to yourself as a child, is assume that because you've been on the planet for 30 years less than your parents, therefore you know 60 years more than they do. It's just not very smart. God, in His grace... I remember my, my, when, when my daughter was four, she would constantly be talking back. Is what I would say, well, I'm, I've been here like 35 years now on the planet... I don't know everything, but I'm pretty sure I've figured out more than a four-year-old. And it's the better mark of humility for a child to say, that's right. God has given me people who've been around the block in my life. And if He's given me Christian parents who are striving to lead me in the Lord, that's even a greater gift. And it's wisdom for me to come under them in everything they call me to. Children, obey your parents in the Lord and honor your father and your mother. To honor someone is different than just obeying them, isn't it? You can obey, like, honey, go upstairs and brush your teeth. Okay! You're getting obedience, but not honor. Uh, When... Solomon, I believe it was, saw his mother Bathsheba. He stood in her presence. He gave her, he gave her honor. And parents, children ought to be going out of their way not just to fly under the radar and not get into trouble, not just to, uh, not just to do exactly what's being said, but actually to honor. Now I know that for many of you, and this really applies to us no matter what age you are, it can be extremely difficult to honor your parents. It can be difficult when you see radical inconsistencies, when there are areas where they keep exposing a sin of yours. It can become extremely difficult to honor your parents. And I want to just give you the testimony of James Montgomery Boyce, who was a pastor in Philadelphia. And he said this, he said, if you're having difficulty in this regard namely with honoring your parents. I suggest that you study your parents and pick out those areas in which you can properly honor them. I remember this with my father at a very critical point in my growing up. Although my father was not at all a bad father in the sense I have been speaking of and never discouraged, but rather encouraged my Christian commitment, the difficulty was twofold. First, my father was a busy doctor who was very seldom home. And second... When he was home, it was difficult to talk to him. My father does not communicate easily on a personal level. In fact, I cannot remember ever having a meaningful and constructive conversation with my father. Not ever. 
but I determined to examine his life for areas in which I could particularly honor and admire him. And I discovered that there were many such areas. I learned that my father was extremely hardworking and conscientious. Indeed, that was why he was away from home so much. So although his being away created problems, there were advantages also. The fact that he could pay for an extended and thorough education for me for it was one of them. Second, I discovered he was an extremely generous man. My father never flaunted his giving to Christian and other charitable causes. In fact, he hardly mentioned it. Although my father was quite open in talking about money, when I learned what he did, some of the resentments I had in other areas dissipated. So maybe if you're harboring bitterness and difficulty in honoring your parents, you need to do a study of your parents where you, instead of rehashing all the bad things, you bring to mind some of the good and choose to commend and honor those things. So the second people responsible for the growing up of children into godly, mature, Christ-like adults is the children themselves. You've got to remember this. I need to leave this point, but you've got to remember this. At the end of the day, your child is an individual soul before God. This is not... um, We're not doing behavioral modification when we do Christian parenting. There aren't just a set of steps we can go through and make our children come out a certain way. We can't run them through our family factory and bring them to God. When it said they must personally bow the knee. They must personally come to know the Lord. And if you're a child here today and you've not done that, you need to know that you can't blame your parents for not doing that. You can't put it off on the church or your parents that you haven't come to know the Lord. You must come and obey Jesus. You must take His salvation. You must trust Him to forgive you. And you must know that He will receive you and He will teach you to obey. Third point. Raising children is a joint responsibility. It's a joint responsibility. Notice that it says that children are to honor their father and their mother. Both. Both the father and the mother lead in the training and the discipline and the love of the children. They're both to be honored. Yes, it's true that verse 4, and we'll look at this in a minute, Verse 4 puts the primary weight and responsibility on the fathers. Nonetheless, the parents are to be honored as a team, as a unit. Look at Proverbs, and we'll see a few different things in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8, it says, And now it's the father speaking. It's it's a father figure writing the book of Proverbs. And in chapter 1, verse 8, the father says, Hear my son your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. So what's the father who's primarily responsible doing? He's saying, listen to me and listen to your mother. Listen to both of us. And look at chapter 6, verse 20. Chapter 6, verse 20 the father again speaking says, My son, keep your father's commandments and forsake not your mother's teaching. So who's been doing some teaching? Who's been teaching the children? It's the mother who's reinforcing that teaching and encouraging the child to keep that teaching. It's the father. They're a unit. 
They're working together. They're in tandem. And they are not to be separated. Which brings us to one of the greatest dangers in family life. One of the greatest dangers in family life. It's a danger for the parents and the danger for the kids. Most parents are going to find some kids easier to get along with than others. They more naturally gravitate to them or get along. And the last thing you want to do is create a situation where the parents enjoy the special favors and hugs and kisses and loves of the one child and find themselves saying, yeah, mommy doesn't understand. No, your father doesn't understand. And all of a sudden what you have is one of the parents uniting themselves with the child and disassociating themselves with the other parent. And it's vital that we never do that. That we, if, if the child is going to honor mom or dad, he has to honor mom and dad. I have one particular child who is particularly rebellious towards my wife and particularly warm towards me. And if I come home at the, at the end of a day when this child has been rebelling against their mother, and I say, oh, but at least we get along so well, I'm undermining everything her mother's been trying to do all day long. And so the first thing that child hears from me when they've been in rebellion against their mother is, that's my wife. You've been rebelling against my wife. The one I'm united to all day long. And you cannot rebel against my wife and be honoring or loving me. The first thing you need to do is repent to my wife and your mother because I'm on her side. Even if I don't think she did it perfectly. Because we're on the same team. And it means that we need to keep that unity in the way we teach. We already saw this. Fathers, you need to affirm your wife's teaching. You need to let the children know that you are behind the Scriptures and the truths that their mothers are teaching them. They need to know that from you. They need to know that Christianity is not just mom's thing and dad didn't talk much. Mom sure talked a lot about the Bible, but dad didn't talk much. That's not okay. Dad needs to be there going, listen to what mom says. And be united in it. In our home, we, we discipline for divisiveness. So if I say to one of my children, no, you can't do that, and they find themselves in a room with another parent all along, and they ask the same question, they get disciplined for that. Because they're trying to undermine that unity and play us against each other. And that, that, that's not helpful for them. It means if your children put pressure on you and you're in the living room being divided and you can tell, my wife's thinking if she should go this way, I'm thinking I should go get this way, we're going to get parted like the Red Sea and this isn't going to go very well for us, then you get alone for a while. You make up your mind together and you come back to the child. But you never allow a situation where they could honor one of you and not the other. And so raising children is a joint responsibility. Here's my last point. Raising a godly child is a father's responsibility. Raising a godly child is a father's responsibility. It's the church's responsibility. It's Paul, the teacher of the church, that says, children, obey your parents. Fathers, teach your children. 
It is the child's responsibility to grow up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord because the child is to respond in obedience. They're to, they're to follow the Scriptures and listen to Paul and Jesus. It's a joint responsibility. And finally, it is the father's responsibility to raise up a godly child. Verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul here singles out the father. Even though both parents are to be honored, he singles out the father. Why? Because the father is the only teacher? No, but because he bears the primary responsibility to make sure the teaching and the discipline and the instruction is going on in the home. There's no way to pass this off, fathers. There's no one you can ask to do this for you. You can't get a surrogate. You can't get a replacement. The Lord in His Word speaks directly to you and calls you to the ultimate responsibility for the discipline and instruction of your children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now what are fathers called to do? Now again, we're not given 10 300-page books. We're given one verse. Dads, you've got to memorize one verse. You've got to have this one nailed. Understood. Fathers, the first, the first is, an, is a negative command. The second is a positive one. The first is, do not provoke your children to anger. The positive one is, bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Don't squelch them in anger. Do build them up in Jesus and knowing Jesus. So what are some things particularly that cause provoking a child to anger? Or as other translations put it, exasperation. It's, it's quite a comment. Let me just stop there. It's quite a comment, isn't it? I mean, we don't usually have the Bible telling us that we can cause other people's emotional problems, do we? The main thrust of the Bible is you're responsible for yourself. And yet a father can have such a deep effect on his child that it can be called exasperating or provoking. He can't ultimately make the child angry, but he can provoke deeply and sorely tempt and nearly destroy a child. Don't do that, Paul says. So what are some ways you can do that? One way to exasperate a child is first of all by harshness. First of all by harshness. Maybe you've seen the movie The Sound of Music where the admiral blows his whistle and expects all the children to line up and he bosses them around like a drill sergeant and every man goes, ooh, for that kind of order in the home. <laughs> And you'll, you'll kill them. You'll, you'll kill your children if you raise them like a drill sergeant. 18-year-old men eventually learn to love their drill sergeants. Four-year-olds don't. And our Father in Heaven is not a drill sergeant. He's not just someone who screams out orders. You don't need a reason for me. You just do it! That is not the way... Our Father speaks to us. He doesn't speak. And you know what will happen if you speak harshly to your children all the time and 
boss them around like a drill sergeant, you'll wind up with one of two kinds of children. One who's just as harsh as you and eventually can't live in the same house as you, or you'll wind up with a wimp who can't stand up to you or anyone because they're so beaten down. Harshness does not raise up a godly child. It beats a child down. And so we need to follow the beautiful admonition of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I need this verse for when I go home tomorrow. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Second thing that can lead to exasperation is unreasonableness. Unreasonableness. You ask the four-year-old to empty the dishwasher and you find the spoons in the wrong place. Yeah, they're four. They can't do a job for an older child. Take your 16-year-old to teach him how to drive and you think that just because he's been watching you drive for 16 years, he ought to be perfect at this by now. And unrealistic expectations that don't understand the age stages of a child and what the child can understand and, and what the personality of the child is like will crush a child. It will exasperate a child. The child will try to please you and eventually the child will be mad and exasperated. And in all of this, what we're trying to be is like our Heavenly Father, right? Our Heavenly Father is not harsh, but our Heavenly Father is not unreasonable either. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He's not saying they're going, this kid can do it! No, he's this kid's dust. Let me bring him along. Let me help him along. The third way that a father can exasperate their child or provoke them to harsh, provoke them to anger is fault-finding. Never-ending fault-finding. And my experience is that Christians often live under a fault-finding God. They live under a God who's always dissecting their, um, dissecting their motives as if He was pulling back the layers of an onion. They're always, they're live, they, they serve a God who even if they get 90% right and they fail a little bit, that God is beating them down and crushing them into despair. And what happens is whatever your theology is in your heart, that's what you'll communicate to your children. If God's beating you down, it's not God doing it. But if you think God is beating you down with some nitpicky perfectionism, then you will beat your children down the same way because you will invariably reflect your theology. So you need to know what God thinks about you. Look at John 17.6. It's one of the most glorious verses in the whole Bible. You need to know what God thinks about you. And then you can treat your children like this. John 17, verse 6. 
Jesus is praying the high priestly prayer. He's praying to His Father. And it says in John 17, verse 6, I have manifested Your name to the people whom I gave You out of the world. It's saying, I've manifested My name to Peter and James and John. I've shown them what You're like. I've shown them the glory of God. And then He says, Yours they were and You gave them to Me. He says, I've got Your elect, God. They were Yours and You have gave them to Me. And they have kept Your Word. They have kept Your Word? Have you, have you ever read the Gospels? P- Peter and James, are we, are we talking about the same guys? Maybe this is out of context. Kept your word? Who gets to be greatest in the kingdom? Me, me, no me! <laughs> they have kept your word. You know who these failures were? They were men who generally followed Jesus. They had a man who left everything to follow Jesus. Now on their way following Jesus, did they fall on their face all the time? You bet they did. In which direction did they keep going when they got up? They followed Him. And Jesus sees that. The God who sees everything primarily sees you as one who kept His Word. That's amazing! covered you in His righteousness, gave you a new heart, and then even though that heart is pulled back by the flesh, He sees that new heart pressing forward in obedience, and He says to His disciples, you have kept My Word. And you know what He says it to? He says it to God the Father. He's praying here. He's talking to God the Father. He says, "Lord, He's not going to lie to God. He wouldn't lie to anyone, but He especially wouldn't lie to God. And He says, they have kept Your Word. And the Bible talks like this all the time. Barnabas was a good man. Full of the Holy Spirit. We tend to say, I'm a bad man. Nothing of the... No, no, the Christian is a good man. Full of the Holy Spirit. You ought to remember great men of the faith. Men like Samson. Gideon. Did he write Hebrews 11 or the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? You bet he did. These imperfect men, God saw their faith and rejoiced. You walk into a child's room and that bed is made like a seven-year-old makes a bed and not like a Marine makes a bed. And it took 30 minutes to pick up the Lego instead of 10 because he moves like a four-year-old. And okay, and you ought to say, you kept my word, son. You know, you know what some kids will do if you say that to them? They'll say, no, I didn't, Dad. I could have done better. That's the right response. That's better than you storming in there like the drill sergeant. Hey, Marine! This could have been done better! Our father is so different, isn't he? No harshness, no unreasonableness, no fault-finding, and by God's grace, no inconsistency. No inconsistency. One day the kid is sitting there tearing up a book, and you're having coffee with a friend. 
and you realize that the tearing up of the book is keeping the child occupied and you can continue to have coffee with your friend. And besides, it's not a book you care about. So the child is permitted to tear the book to pieces and you enjoy coffee with a friend. The next day, you're washing dishes and there's no friend to enjoy and the child is tearing up your favorite book and they're going to get a spanking. And the child learns... My parents are primarily about them, not me. They're primarily not about training me, but about serving themselves. And so we want to be free from inconsistency because we have a Father who has no turning, nor no shadow due to change. He's he's, he's consistent. Now you might say, well, wait a second. I'm done. Well, one of the things that will keep your children from being exasperated, if you are inconsistent, is if you're repentant. My, my wife's father, he would tell you this story if he was here. My wife's father was a pastor who fell in the ministry into pornography and had to leave the ministry. When he left the pulpit, he walked down the stairs and he parked himself in a pew in that same church and he's been there for the last 20 years. He never left the place where he had been ashamed. He's he's one of the most humble men I've ever met in my life and he's a true man of God. He's never returned to the ministry, but he has totally returned to Jesus. And his life, for much of my wife's upbringing, was utterly inconsistent. And she adores her father. He's the most, he's the most repentant man she ever met. He gives her hope for all men because she's just seen God change her father. You think, I've been inconsistent. There's no hope for my kids. No, tell them you've been inconsistent. There's hope for your kids. Tell them you've been inconsistent. Confess your sins to one another and you will be healed. A a father who is seeking to destroy harshness and unreasonableness and fault-finding, who's seeking to be consistent and who's repentant when he's not inconsistent or not consistent, that father will not exasperate their children. But there's something positive that needs to be done too. Oh, I need to go through. I'm sorry, I have one more thing. One more thing. I'm going to exasperate you by how long I'm preaching tonight. One other thing that will exasperate your children is neglect not proactively moving into their lives will not leave them in neutral. It will exasperate them. Look at Proverbs 22.15. Proverbs 22.15. In Proverbs chapter 22.15, we read these words. 
folly, that is that God-dishonoring, God-ignoring bent of heart called folly, is bound up in the heart of a child. But the rod of discipline, which in our language would be but a spanking, a loving, non-abusive spanking, drives it far from Him. What happens if you neglect your child and don't discipline them? Then the folly never gets driven out. And you get a young man or a young woman full of folly, watching themselves fall all over the place, watching themselves fall into foolishness, all the time getting the message, my father doesn't care or my father doesn't know what to do and nobody can help me. There's no way to get this folly out of my heart. But if a father would move in and care and act, teaching and instructing, then the folly would get out. On the positive side, here's what Paul says from Ephesians chapter 6. And this is where we'll close. Take a little bit, but on the positive side of Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Don't provoke them, but rather do something positive. Bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now discipline is an act of providing guidance for responsible living. Attained through correction. It's a techni- it's, you're, you're, resp- you're, you're giving guidance. There's, there's teaching involved. Here's the way to responsible living, but it's got to be reinforced. You have to apply the Board of Education to the Seat of Knowledge on occasion to, to help reinforce the teaching. And then instruction is counsel about an Im, or is counsel about an improper course. So you're, you're counseling. Don't go that way. The Proverbs is full of instruction. My son, don't get in the gang. It'll lead you this way. My son, uh, don't get into this kind of financial deal. You'll wind up broke. My son, don't get involved with that kind of lady. She'll, she'll wind up dead. That's instruction. Discipline gives guidance for responsible living, but it involves correction. There's, there's a time to correct. Many times verbally, sometimes in a controlled and loving way, physically. And then on the other hand, there's instruction, which is the teaching we give to help our children avoid an improper course. So let me just quickly review what are some of the basic things that ought to be in this instruction. The number one thing you can teach your children so they know the discipline and instruction of the Lord is to teach them about the Lord. To teach them the Gospel of Jesus Christ. To teach them that though they are sinners, Christ died for sinners. And that He's willing to receive them. That Christ receives sinful men. That He was raised from the dead and He'll give them resurrection life in their souls the minute they want it. The minute they'll bow their knee and repent to Him. That is the number one thing you need to teach your children. If you get the sense that you are telling your children the Gospel every day, something is going right in your home. People think the key... 
They think the key to parenting is getting the exact right amount of TV watching or the exact right uh, clothing or the exact right amount of room time or the exact amount of... The key thing is the power of the Gospel which is the power of God unto salvation. That needs to be riveting the home. And then on top of that, you want to teach them the Scriptures. Of course, the Scriptures all point back to the Gospel, but you want to teach them all the wisdom of the Scriptures. And people say, well, do I do that by a family worship time every morning or every night? You can do that. But the most important thing is as you walk by the way, and as you talk, as you face all the different things in life, it becomes abundantly clear that mom and dad think through every issue with that Gospel riveting their minds. With that Gospel dominating them. Yes. And, and you need to not just... You don't, here's the thing. As you walk by the way, this is Deuteronomy 6, as you walk by the way and talk by the way, you have to talk by the way. Sometimes parents do the Christian thing, but don't tell their children why they're doing the Christian thing. Well, I don't want to be proud... You don't have that luxury with with children. You've got to tell them what you're doing. Okay, maybe you don't need to go broadcast it all over the church what you're doing, but you've got to tell your kids. Tell them why you're doing what you're doing. Tell them how Jesus is affecting your money. How Jesus is affecting your thought life. How Jesus is moving you to forgive. Why you pay your bills is because of Jesus. You do all of this because of the Lord. Your, your life is saturated with the Gospel. It's dominating you. Why don't you feel condemned and depressed and despairing when you failed them as a child? Why can you receive their forgiveness and receive Christ's forgiveness and go on? Because He died on a cross. So we need the Gospel. And then we need to teach the Scriptures as we walk by the way. One thing that I think is particularly encouraging for parents to do for their children is to set up memorials. Memorials. You remember what uh, the uh, people of Israel were told to do with the manna? To put it in an omer, which was a jar. They were to put this amazing miracle bread in a jar and keep it. And then later on they would show each other, do you see this jar of bread? This is how the Lord fed us. My wife's grandfather wrote down all the miracles that ever happened in his life. The people that were healed in answer to prayer. The people who were saved in answer to prayer. He wrote them down. And he gave his grandchildren this book. When we read that book in our home, we cheer louder than a football game in the South. I mean, we get so excited about what God has done. And if you've been here for a year or two and never seen an answer to prayer, have you never seen God save someone? Have you, have you never seen any of this? I know you have. I know you have. Write it down. And pass it on. Write it on. And give it to them. Encourage them with what God has done in their parents' life. Amen. One of the things I pray is that God would allow me to do great deeds for Him, not so that I can be great, but so that my kids will know that their dad trusted God and that they can trust Him too. 
It's great that there was a Spurgeon. It's great that there was a John G. Payton. It's great that there were all these men of God. It's great there was a George Whitfield. But you are your child's father. My dad didn't have enough money to pay the bills, but he got on his knees and prayed until something came through. That was my dad! Train up your children in faith. With the Gospel, with Scripture, with memorials, with faith. Look at Proverbs again. Train them up with faith. Verse 18. I'm sorry, Proverbs 19, verse 18. Proverbs 19, verse 18. He's going to test your knowledge of Scripture there. I'd read it and you'd have to figure out where it was. <laughs> Proverbs 19, verse 18. Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. The problem, what happens, you parent for a while and you go, there is no hope for this one. This one's not coming around. No, there is hope. There is hope. Discipline your son, for there is hope. As long as that child is alive, there is hope they'll respond to God's discipline. And as long as they're in your home, there is hope they'll respond to yours. Discipline your child, for there is hope. And if you stop disciplining, you have set your heart on putting them to death. You give up, you're killing them. 22 verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, I thought about reading this passage out, and I know there are some of you here with older children who you trained up in the way they should go, and right now they have departed from it. And this is a proverb, and the proverbs are generally true. They're not something we can say, this will always happen. But let me just say this. Why don't you go before God and say, Lord, it's generally true. Would you bring them back? Would you bring them back? And then after you're done praying that, Lord, even if my child's not generally one of the generally true ones, would you save him anyway? Yeah. Would you bring him in? Yes. But do have the hope that praise God as a general rule, children respond to the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 29.17 29.17 Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Lord God, would you let this child give delight to my heart? I hate to spank them. I hate to discipline them. But Lord, I want delight for my heart in my old age. I want to see this child grow to be a man or a woman of God so I will not neglect to discipline them. I won't do it just with anxiety. I better spank them or this is all going to go wrong. No, you're not spanking out of anxiety. You're not correcting or giving admonitions out of anxiety. You're doing it out of faith. You follow me? There's a big difference between the parents like, oh, this is going to go really bad. My my kids are going to get all messed up. I better go discipline them. That's anxiety. Faith says, God, You have given me these tools, this Word of God to correct them, this discipline to correct them. And I trust you can use these things in my weak hands. I do them now in faith. 
bless this time. Train them with the Gospel. Train them with the Scriptures. Train them with memorials and faith. And train them with the rod. Proverbs 13.24 Proverbs 13.24 Whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he whoever loves him is diligent to discipline him. Spanking, and when I say spanking, I mean controlled, controlled, faith-filled, submissive, I'm being obedient to the Word of God, spanking, something that won't get injured, like the bum, which is nice and padded, and doesn't sustain injuries, That's what I'm talking about when I say spanking. That kind of physical correction is always being maligned as abusive, as child abuse, as harmful. But we must decide right now, what do you believe, the world or the Word of God? The world says you're abusing your child. Well, there are people who abuse your child. That's not what we're advocating. We're not advocating abusing your child. We're, we're, we're talking about taking a disobedient child and we're not talking about the kid wiggled in his chair. We're not talking about he's nitpicky and every time he's nit, I'm nitpicky and every time he does anything wrong, I jump on him. We're talking about an intentional disobedience to something clear, something that they could be reasonably expected to do and the father and the mother is taking them out of the situation and physically correcting them. That's not abuse. And to not do it is to hate your child. What happens to children who don't ever get spanked is they believe that the world is only made up of words. But the world, the real world, has consequences, doesn't it? And eternity certainly has consequences. When you spank your child, you are teaching them the nature of reality that these words are followed by consequences. The words of God will be followed by consequences. In this life, if you're a sinful person, your life will be hard. The way of the transgressor is hard. And your mommy and daddy in this controlled environment are teaching you that lesson. You sin, it will, go, it will not go well for you. But even more importantly, there's an eternal truth that the way of the transgressor is hard and ends in hell. Sin ends in pain. And we're teaching our children the nature of reality by disciplining them as parents. He who loves Him. It's an act of love. Don't ever say, this is one person said this, don't ever say, I was being really loving, but then I had to spank them. No, it's I was being really loving, and come here, bend over my knee, I'm going to keep being really loving. That's what it says, right? He who loves Him is diligent to discipline Him. It ought to flow out of love. You ought to be saying, I am currently obeying the law of Christ. I'm currently loving my child. I don't want to put them to death. And so we discipline with the rod. The Gospel, the Scripture, memorials, faith, the rod. And then just one last word and I'm done. What does it mean to teach and train your children in the the discipline and instruction 
of the Lord. Last point. It means that you're aiming to make them a lot like the Lord. And the Lord was separate from sinners. But I'm afraid often that's the only part we get. He did not sit in the seat of scoffers. He did not walk in the way of sinners. And Christian parents are right to shelter and seclude their children to the point where they also are encouraged not to sit with scoffers or, eat or be with sinners in, in a way that enjoys sin. But the Lord was on a mission. The Lord was on a mission. He was with prostitutes. He was with tax collectors. He was rebuking the Pharisees. He was talking to the lost. And yes, an unbelieving child in a Christian home may not be ready for full missionary duty. But the way you're aiming, where you're aiming with your child is not just that they learn how to pull back from sin, but they learn how to engage with sinners and love them. Like Jesus. Because the aim of the church is not just to pull back from the world, it's to pull back from sin and then enter the world on a mission. I'll be really honest with you, there ought to be shouts of amens right now. If, there, if that wasn't true, you wouldn't be sitting here. You're saved because the Lord is on a mission. You're saved because God saves sinners. You're here because He takes ex-hippies and He takes ex-drug addicts and He takes ex-hypocrites and He takes ex-everything. And He saves them. And they want to be pure. But once they are walking in some purity, they need to get out. And you can't read Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 and read the discipline and the instruction of the Lord and then not wind up being like the Lord who loves sinners. So part of parenting ought not just to be making sure your kids watch G rated movies for no more than three hours a day. Part of parenting ought to be meeting, they're meeting with widows. You're taking them to see orphans. You're taking. I got a. I got an email from one of our pastors this week. Why don't we take our boys down to the abortion clinic this one of these Saturdays and teach them what manhood looks that defends the those who are on their way to the slaughter. That's part of Christian discipleship. That's part of raising them up to be like the Lord. Is that the, the end goal is not just that they stay safe, but they become Christ-like. Let's pray. Father, I've said a lot and I hope that it's gone forth in the power of Your Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that You would give grace to sort through all these, this information with spiritual wisdom and discernment and love. And You would raise up an army of children through the church, through their parents, through their own obedience, through Your Spirit. And they would become like Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.